it's back. Between a global pandemic and an unfolding economic crisis, at times, it's been easy to forget. But with a deadline looming and negotiators gathering in London for urgent talks, Brexit has just exploded back into the headlines. Another Brexit showdown between Britain and the European Union. British Shock tactics on Brexit, the suggestion that Britain might ignore the Brexit withdrawal treaty tortuously agreed last year, ignited a reaction of anger and disbelief. With a transition period ending on December the 31st and rhetoric ramping up on all sides, Britain and Europe are running out of time to strike a deal. It is all very well playing brinkmanship, but it also raises the risks of something unexpected going wrong. If you assume that you can get a deal at the last minute, that's fine. But what happens if something unexpected comes along and you really don't have the time to fix it? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, remember Brexit? This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. If you're updating your closet for summer, you need dependable clothes that you can wear anywhere, whatever you're doing. And for that, you can look to American Giant. American Giant makes clothing of exceptional quality for people who want something more than the status quo offers. Whether you need to re-up on reliable everyday t-shirts, pick up a solid pair of shorts, or invest in a pair of durable jeans, American Giant is a better choice. They make everything right here in the USA, from start to finish. So when you buy from American Giant, you become part of creating jobs and improving local communities in towns and cities all across the country. And keeping things local ensures the kind of quality you'll feel and appreciate for years to come. Shop your new summertime closet staples at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your order when you use code WA23 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com with promo code WA23. Prime Minister is to introduce legislation to override a key part of the Brexit withdrawal agreement, raising concerns about the trade talks which are about to resume with the EU. Make no mistake, politically right now, this is dynamite. Could it be a catalyst for concessions, unlocking a last-minute deal, or torpedo any imminent prospect of one? The stage was set for urgent Brexit talks in London this week to try to hammer out a deal. But before they'd even begun, two bombshells threatened to send the whole process up in flames. The first landed in a leak to the FT that Downing Street was preparing to tear up the withdrawal agreement that Boris Johnson signed just eight months ago. It's absolutely astonishing that any government who says that they want to go and do trade deals around the world would just rip up uh, an agreement that they made a few months ago with the European Union. And what they would be doing in that 
would be undermining the Good Friday Agreement, which is an agreement voted for by the vast majority of people on the island of Ireland. They'd be risking a hard border and they would be threatening the peace and stability that we've built up uh, over decades. The second came in a statement from the Prime Minister on Monday morning that no deal would be a good outcome for Britain. His assertion that no deal is also a good UK option, plus talk of new legislation undermining parts of the EU divorce deal, including the Northern Ireland Protocol, got many here very hot under the collar. The UK left the EU on January the 31st, but not much has changed since then. And that's because we're in a transition period until the end of this year, so we're still trading as part of the EU single market. What happens after December the 31st is still a moot point. We only have five weeks left to strike a deal, so the talks in London this week really do matter. But with such an incendiary start, all bets are off. This week was always going to be difficult, and now it's got a whole lot harder. That's Oliver Wright, policy editor for The Times. He's been covering Brexit for the paper since the referendum in 2016, or for what sometimes feels like a lifetime. Yeah, there is no disguising the sense in Downing Street of frustration, really, partly at the manner and the way in which all this has come out. They always did intend to make these various announcements about Northern Ireland and how things would work in Northern Ireland if there wasn't a deal later in the week, but they wanted to do it on their own terms. And, you know, talking to people in Downing Street yesterday, they were pretty despondent. You know, they said it would be fair to say this wasn't how we wanted it to come out. And in terms of this move on Northern Ireland, you know, we'd heard so much about this oven-ready deal Is all of that now, has it just been torn up? So there are two parallel things going on here, and it's quite easy to get them confused. They're linked, but they're not exactly the same thing. So the first thing is the withdrawal agreement, which we all remember. It's what Boris Johnson signed last year, the oven-ready deal. It was all going to be brilliant. Now, yes, it was a deal, but there were a lot of details in that deal that still need to be ironed out, particularly in regard to Northern Ireland. And the agreement set up a committee that was designed to work out all these details by the end of this year. Now, that committee is still meeting. Now, what the government are basically planning to do is say, well, if we can't reach an agreement with the EU via this joint committee by the end of the year, then there's a whole lot of uncertainty. So we are going to step in and we're going to say what the state aid regime should be insofar as it affects Northern Ireland. We're going to say what goods should attract customs duties and customs checks, even if that hasn't been formally agreed with the EU. Now, that is, frankly, pretty provocative stuff. And it's even more provocative when it comes out in a way in which, you know, it appears in a UK newspaper before British diplomats have even told their EU counterparts what the government was planning to do. I think the government fear that the EU will see this as an attempt effectively to blow up the trade negotiations, which are separate, and avoid the blame for it. I'm not sure the EU will do that. I think they're canny enough to just sort of hold their fire for a moment. Neither side wants to be blamed for a breakdown in the talks, a collapse in the negotiations and no trade agreement in December. They both want the other side to get the blame for that. So I think at the moment we're going to have more shadow boxing. How will this news have gone down in Europe? I mean, how will it be going down with the people who've turned up here for negotiations? I think they're a bit dismayed. One of the problems of Brexit negotiations really throughout the entire process is, uh, and I don't think this is always appreciated by 
a lot of people, is that the EU tends often to misread what's going on in the UK. They see the headlines, they see things through the prism of the press, and they read bad intention into it, and sometimes there is bad intention. And there is mistrust on both sides, to start with. And so the room for sort of people misreading what the other side really wants, what the other side is really doing, is quite high. And I think you're going to see that again this week. You know, the EU will see this in nefarious terms, even if actually it isn't quite that way. Does it make it look like we're we're sort of bad actors in this? We're sort of ready to renege on agreements before we've even got to the main negotiations? I think that's exactly exactly how it may be seen in EU circles. They'll see it as a threat. They will they will definitely see it in those terms. And I think, to be honest, with some justification. And how is it going to change negotiations this week? I mean, are they turning up in <laughs> clearly think, not in the friend list form? <laughs> no, I think it will change the mood of the negotiations at the top. I think in terms of you know the various different terrible, boring phrase, the work streams, the civil servants going over their bit of the brief, whether it's talking about, you know, trading goods, justice cooperation. I don't think it will make much difference to those sort of dry and technical elements of the talks. But I think where it will have an effect is in the discussions between Michel Barnier and David Frost. I think those discussions will be wider than they would have been otherwise. I think Barnier will be looking for reassurances from Frost as to exactly what the government intends to do. But I think it it adds to the sense that the talks at the moment aren't going anywhere very fast. There isn't a vast amount of goodwill on either side. There's quite a lot of suspicion on each side. And, you know, deals ultimately and agreements like this are a leap of faith, a leap of faith on both sides that it can be made to work. It's never going to be perfect. There's never going to be a full alignment, but you believe that something is possible. And I think the damaging part of these revelations is this sort of suggestion of perfidious Albion, that Britain can't be trusted, Boris Johnson can't be trusted, and that will make it harder for the EU to make the kind of compromises which London insists is necessary to get this trade agreement done. Is it going to need some very frosty dinners? (laughs) Well, I mean, there isn't going to be the traditional pre-negotiating round dinner tonight, usually in, in Downing Street, which is you know a small group of people, Michel Barnier, David Frost, and just a few key aides. This time, read into this what you like, there will be no dinner. UK government sources say, well, we've had a lot of dinners, we've had a lot of breakfasts, so don't read anything into this. But I think you can legitimately say that if everything was going swimmingly, they might have kept up the tradition. And the fact that it's not happening is quite a good metaphor for the state of the negotiations in general. But no, there'll be no, there'll be no fish, no Herefordshire beef. How much does this week's negotiations, I mean, how important are they it does feel in the interminable process of Brexit like we've been here before, but are these negotiations particularly important? We have been here before. We were here before in the autumn of 2018, if anyone can remember that far back, when Theresa May was trying to finalise her ultimately doomed withdrawal agreement. As a result, if we went ahead and held the vote tomorrow, the deal would be rejected by a significant margin. We will therefore defer the vote schedule for tomorrow and not proceed to divide the House at this time. 
And I remember very similar sort of scare stories. This isn't going to happen. It's all about to fall apart. We were there perhaps even more dramatically in the autumn of last year when Boris Johnson had come into Downing Street and was insisting that he needed to renegotiate Theresa May's withdrawal agreement. Everyone was saying, can't possibly be done. It won't ever be done. We're heading for no deal. Actually, many in the government thought that was a possibility as well. But then there was that famous meeting between Mr Johnson and Varadkar at a hotel somewhere outside Liverpool where they walked in the garden and came up with a solution. We do want to be your friend and your ally, your Athena in doing so. And I think the manner in which you leave the European Union will determine whether that's possible. So, yeah, there's a lot of hyperbole. And I think someone like me who's watched this for the best part of four or five years, you're always a bit suspicious when people say this is the crunch moment. But that being Ah. said... (laughs) um, This is the crunch moment, isn't it? (laughs) This week is important because if they don't make progress this week, then we are starting to run out of time. There is one deadline that cannot be pushed back, and that is the 31st of December this year. That is when the transition period comes to an end. And I think everyone accepts that there is no chance that that is going to be extended. So unless we have a trade agreement by then, we're going to leave the transition period without a trade agreement, and that will have effects on all of our lives, certainly in the short term. And to get that trade agreement, you can't just sign it at 11 o'clock on the 30th of December. There are processes which have to be gone through. Now, the EU is saying, if this trade agreement is going to be ready in time for the 31st of December, it has to be agreed by EU leaders at the very, very latest by the end of October. That deadline has moved even closer. Boris Johnson says we have until the 15th of October, or roughly five weeks, to come up with a deal. Or we'll have to prepare to leave without one. So we we are really up against it in terms of the deadline. You know, we are sort of into essay crisis territory here. Yes, but, you know, the EU and, frankly, the British government has never operated on anything other than essay crisis deadlines. (laughs) We're all aware of those sort of midnight summits, 4am summits. I mean, I remember going to Brussels once and there was supposed to be an agreement reached at 10 o'clock that night, then it went to midnight and then they went to 4am, I think they finally got to bed and still didn't have an agreement. They went back to it the next day and eventually we got to an agreement somewhere around tea time. So I, I remember those I remember those summits. I remember one that seemed to go through two days without break and everybody exactly. everybody was in the press room trying to find breakfast. You know? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Meals so, merged into one, yeah. time zones all warm. Yes, it's a disaster. they described it as a British breakfast, then a British lunch, then a British tea. <laughs> but, you know, that's that's how they operate. Isn't there a danger in that, though, that you end up with a badly done deal? There is something to the process of picking through, through yeah, the... There the, is. It's called scrutiny, sense. yes. Yes, <laughs> scrutiny. <laughs> I mean, there's, um, a hu- there's a huge risk in that. As an experiment in democracy, is this really the best way? No, um, and it never has been. And, you know, deadlines are useful, but they're also dangerous. And the, there's a second thing to that, which is, you know, it is all very well playing brinkmanship, but it also raises the risks of something unexpected going wrong. If you assume that you can get a deal at the last minute, that's fine. But what happens if something unexpected comes along and you really don't have the time to fix it? There is a danger of miscalculation in these talks, but the government are doubling down. 
the chief Brexit negotiator, David Frost, threw down the gauntlet in the Mail on Sunday, saying that freedom to set our own rules was what being an independent country is about. That's what the British people voted for, and that's what will happen at the end of the year, come what may. The Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, toured the television studios on Sunday, raising the stakes for this week's talks. So we hope that the EU as a whole will really uh, understand that this week is the moment of reckoning. The Prime Minister has said it would be a good outcome for Britain. But what would life after no deal actually look like? It could be really tricky, and the first place to look is going to be Dover. A huge amount of our imports comes in through the Dover-Calais route. Most of our medicines, most of our food, most of our goods, there's a huge amount of trade which goes through that port. And from the 1st of January next year, if there is no deal, there will be tariffs to pay on that goods. So if we wanted to support export a Welsh lamb to France, that will incur a duty and that incurs paperwork and that paperwork will have to be ready. And in terms of a no deal, about a year ago when all of this was sort of up in the air, we were all making very public gestures to show that we were preparing for a no deal. And it was almost sort of part of going into negotiations to sort of show we, we were ready for anything. It's very quiet now. We're not talking about setting up, you know, extra measures at Dover. Are we actually preparing? We are. We are. And there is a a huge amount of work going on behind the scenes. And there are very detailed plans in place for what happens at Dover. The police have powers and, and highways agency officials have powers to stop lorries entering Kent, for goodness sake, checking their paperwork in Kent and seeing if they've got the paperwork that's necessary to export into the European Union. There's infrastructure to you know, hold lorries in case there are problems. A lot of thought has gone into this. A lot of money has been put into new customs systems. The firms themselves can get government money to, to get their systems up into place. And I think as the next few weeks and a couple of months go on, you're going to hear a lot more about No Deal. I think it is, it's going to feel a bit a bit of deja vu. It's a bit like last year. And the really, really difficult thing for the government is that they are not entirely in charge of that process. They can exhort exporters to have the right paperwork to make sure that they've hired a sort of a customs guru who is going to take them through and make sure that they've got the right paperwork so that they can go easily into France. But they can't really, ahead of time, make them do that. That's up to the individual businesses. And if individual businesses don't act and aren't ready on January the 1st, there could be real problems if the French Customs Authority decide to rigorously enforce the new regime. And the difficulty is, if they start enforcing the new regime, you basically clog up the channel. Lorries can't come through, lorries start stacking up. We've all seen it when the French fishermen occasionally blockade the ports in Calais, what happens Mm. to lorries being sort of parked up the up the side of the M2 and the M20, that could be seen on an absolutely grand scale. And if goods aren't able then to come into the UK because everything's got into gridlock, trucks aren't in the right place, then, you know, potentially, and this is not scaremongering, but it is a, it is a possibility, you know, you start to see shortages of things. You know, in the middle of the winter, for example, most of our fresh fruit and vegetables comes from Southern Europe. And would it be particularly damaging to the economy, you know, given that we we already know we've got some 
bleak economic forecasts for, for what's coming ahead. How would a no deal affect what we're already expecting? One of the things about a no-deal Brexit is the kind of industries that would be most affected by a no-deal Brexit, say, for example, the car industry would be one of them, those industries which haven't been too badly affected by COVID. So you could have a sort of double whammy that not only have you got your you know, your retail, your restaurants who've been really, really sort of decimated by COVID, but that no-deal would come along and really hurt Britain's manufacturing industry. So it would hit the sectors that COVID haven't. And that's another thing that worries the government. Add to that, you know, Boris Johnson won the election last year on Brexit, but Brexit could become a real millstone around his neck. Do you remember what it's like being in your 20s? I sometimes look back at that period of my life and laugh just as much as I cringe. If you do the same, then you've got to watch Queenie, the new original series on Hulu. Who is Queenie? Queenie is a 20-something year old living in London. She's facing all the firsts. First major heartbreak, first shitty apartment and soul-sucking job, first therapy session to work through those mommy issues. Can she turn her quarter-life crisis into a revolution? Maybe. Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. The new series Queenie is now streaming on Hulu. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In terms of the actual negotiation, in terms of what will be happening all week... What are you expecting? I mean, is it like some sort of high-stakes poker game in there? Or or is it actually just sort of quite friendly? It's strange. I'd love to give you the sort of... the downfall version of the dramatics <laughs> and the, the brinksmanship and everyone sitting around the table and banging their fists and saying, this will not do. But sadly, it's, it's not really like that. The way the talks work is that they're split up into a series of different groups. So there's a group on fishing. There's a group which is looking at police and justice cooperation. There's a group that's looking at scientific cooperation. And all these groups meet and they aren't politicians, mainly these groups. They're teams of officials from both the European Union and from the civil service. They're, they're very reasonable people. There are a lot of lawyers there. It's, you know, if you were writing the film script to this, it would be, it would be really hard because you'd have, you know, one character saying, can I just refer you to point four point eight point six? I'm really not sure that there should be a semicolon in there. That changes the <laughs> meaning of the sentence. Um, there's quite a lot of that going on because these are legal texts. They've got to stand legal challenge. And yes, there are 
are huge political trade-offs, but the basis of the the real negotiations is is quite High boring. Drama, this. Yeah. <laughs> quite boring and quite quite nitty gritty. <laughs> These are men with ring binders. <laughs> These are men with ring binders and, and, and lots of ring binders and coloured coloured dividers. Um, uh, I tried reading the withdrawal agreement. Um, it's, <laughs> How did that go? <laughs> it was long. Um, you know, the, yes, there are the sort of big political issues which we all know about, but a lot of this is about trying to square circles in in quite sort of legalistic ways and and find areas of compromise that both sides can live with. Tell me a bit about the characters on both teams. Who is going to be facing each other off around the table? The strange thing is we don't really know an awful lot about the people who are heading up each of these individual groups. What we do know a little bit about is obviously the, the main protagonists. You've got Michel Barnier and, and David Frost. I mean, Mich- Michel Barnier is, <laughs> is now writing his memoirs, for goodness sake, on the Brexit talks. That's, that's one for serialisation. <laughs> He's a very urbane, clever Frenchman. He is fundamentally a, a politician, it's in his interests to get this deal done because it, as much as anything, if you do something in life, you want to see it to a successful conclusion. You know, he would like to be the person that negotiated Brexit and he wouldn't like the end to his career to be the whole thing falling to pieces at the last minute. His opposite number is an intriguing character called David Frost. Now, David Frost is a former diplomat. He was a British ambassador in a previous life, but his his foreign office career rather stalled. He never really made it to the top as he would have seen it. He didn't get one of the big the big foreign office postings and he was seconded to the Department for Business and then went in a slightly strange sideways move and took up a job with the, the Scotch Whiskey Association as their sort of as their effectively their ambassador. He was one of the not first Brexiteers, but he was certainly he was unusual in that he was someone with a diplomatic background who was sceptical of Britain's place in the European Union. And back in the day, long before we knew we were going to have a Brexit referendum, he was mingling in circles of what would be sort of nascent Brexiteers in the think tank world. And you know, they liked him because he was part of the establishment then, obviously, as we know, got a job working for Boris Johnson when he became Foreign Secretary as his advisor, because Boris wanted someone in the Foreign Office who who both knew their way round the department, but also wasn't a Europhile, who, who shared some of his broad Brexit thinking. And it's interesting that there, there are sort of big ideological Brexiteers basically running the British team this time round. I mean, has that made a massive difference to negotiations? I think it has made some and actually I think it's an advantage because at least from the European side they know what they're dealing with. There was always a sense with Theresa May and Ollie Robbins that you know, A, they weren't quite sure what Britain wanted and B, they weren't quite sure that even if they made an agreement with you know Mr Robbins and, and indeed the Prime Minister that that agreement would stick and indeed it didn't. Whereas at least now the people that are in charge are the people that wanted Brexit from the first off and had a vision of what Brexit would be from the first off. So it's a more honest and straightforward negotiation. Whereas I think they felt that 
under Theresa May, the government was effectively trying to uh, negotiate quasi-EU membership without the name. Are you still optimistic about Britain getting a deal? I mean, we spoke about this last week and you you sort of said you were about 60% sure that Britain would get a deal. Are those still the odds? I tend to stick with that, just on the basis that I think I can see a way for a deal if both sides want it, and it is in both sides' interest to get a deal. But those odds of mine are wildly over-optimistic compared to the odds that were given by Downing Street privately at the weekend, where they said that the chances of a deal, these are people, sources in Downing Street, the chances of a deal were 30% or even less. Really? They've got skin in the game. They want to suggest the chances of getting a deal are remote for two interlinked reasons. One is that if they don't get a deal, it's fine. They're preparing people for that. They're sort of you know, warning them that this isn't likely so it doesn't come as a shock. And secondly, if they do get a deal, they can declare it's a tremendous triumph and it's all due to them. I still think a deal is possible, indeed is likely, but, you know, 60-40, it could go either way. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Times policy editor, Oliver Wright. You can read more of Oliver's work via a digital subscription at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer today was Asia Fuchs. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Nicola Rohrfast. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you have a minute, please do leave us a review. Let us know what you think of the podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and now we're also available on the Times Radio app, along with all the other podcasts from the Times. To download the app, search for Times Radio in the App Store. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from the Times, And it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.